The cool thing about venture-backed startups is that it attracts the smartest people in the world to pursue a vision, right? If you only have enough money and you're bootstrapping to pay someone 50 or $100,000 a year, you're not going to attract the top AI researcher at Google to join your company. That's just a fact. 200 people start banging down our door saying, I want to use this. That gives us a lot of data to say, we should build out and productize around it. The way I kind of think about this is that like, we are a very just get quickly and get data and see if it's worth building out and spending a lot of engineering resources on building out the product further um, versus have a beautiful product that's fully fleshed out and then ship. Only recruiting and having A-plus players on the team who raise the bar incentivizes other A-plus players to join. It's kind of the flywheel. Once you start bringing in other talent that is maybe like a B player, they're fine, but they're not raising the bar then it's easy for the general organization to have more slack. Build your toolkit and make sure that you're aware. Hey Chris, how are you doing well? I'm great, let's do this. Yeah, um, so I think, uh, let's just get into it. I'll kick this off with, you You quit your job at Goldman Sachs on 22nd August uh, on your birthday, why? Oh, that's a fun one. So I guess to take it all the way back, I was like one of those ambitious, intense college kids who had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And so like other kids at Yale, I was like, what do ambitious, intense kids point their head in that direction? Um, and that's what led me to Goldman. Um, interned there during college, you know, COVID hit since I graduated in 2021, my junior year. And that's when I even figured out what a startup was. I literally had no idea. My dad sells commercial insurance. I didn't know what a startup was. I found this guy named Paul Graham, who you might know, you know, founder of YC. I literally read one of his essays. I was like, wait, this is pretty cool. And so that led me down a rabbit hole of being figuring out what technology and startups were. And that kind of led me to Twitter. And so I said, where do these people hang out? They're like somewhere people in tech and Twitter. And I was like, I might as well just start shouting into the void. And so I started interviewing a bunch of founders, um, you know, Anna Cheer of Twitch, Michael Seibel, YC, Kevin Ryan, and, and Mongo. Uh, started turning that into content and started going viral on Twitter. And so I built up this following of almost 200,000 people um, while I was still at Goldman for a year. And I was like, I'm either going to start my own company or join one. And so I ended up joining a startup uh, that had raised a series A called Meow. And that's where we are today. Yep. Awesome. So, uh, uh, what is Meow? I'll just like a broad overview of what Meow is. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a fintech startup um, that serves other startups and treasury management um, for other startups. Yeah. So why did you, did you join Meow? What, what drew Yeah, you? a lot of reasons actually. So I kind of thought about, and I think this is useful for the listener too, like when you're leaving a very tried and true career path, which is investment banking in a big place that your parents have heard of, uh, there's a very important calculus that you should have. I think that calculus is simple. You're going to take a quote unquote career risk. You should not just blindly jump off a bridge. And so here's a few factors that I think about when I try to control the variables of going to a company that was quote unquote riskier. And I'll talk about how to reframe risk as well. The first thing, are we going to fail in six months or 12 months? That is actually a stark reality that happens for 99% of startups, especially given this fundraising. And so the confidence I had because we closed a $22 million Series A and I joined as the ninth employee, we had 10 years of runway in the back, right? I knew for a fact that we wouldn't fail in the next 6, 12, even 18 months. And so from a risk perspective, 
I wasn't just joining a startup that was about to go off a cliff. That was the first thing I thought about. Second thing was honestly upside and potential. I joined as a person that was a go-to-market generalist sales marketing, like, but we were only nine people. So I wasn't joining a hundred person company where they didn't trans processes. And so for me, that was really important when I was like, wait, I could make something of myself if I proved it. I could have the upside and deliver versus joining a big company where you didn't have that. And so it really came down to, I thought to myself, it was like, failure would be me getting fired in three months because I suck. I'd rather figure out anyway that I'm not cut out to be a startup builder, right? And so that was how I thought about it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an incredible point, but all right, we'll get back to schedule. Uh, you, you found out that you wanted to try building startup. Uh, you either find found a company or uh, work as a startup. But how do early stage or first time founders really find out what drives them? In terms of motivation, like what's the motivation? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think for so really, me, per, yeah, for for me in terms of driver and like what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, and this is another reason I think dovetails with your point about, you know, joining a venture back startup. The cool thing about venture back startups is it attracts the smartest people in the world to pursue a vision, right? If you only have enough money and you're bootstrapping to pay someone 50 or $100,000 a year, you're not going to attract the top AI researcher at Google to join your company. That's just a fact. So venture gives you the opportunity to attract top talent going after a big vision. And that's what gets me excited. I think like regardless of outcome of the business, one of the best things in the world is like being surrounded by savage A plus players pursuing that goal. And so I think it makes it more fun. It makes it more enjoyable to work around those types of people. And so that's how it drives me. I was uh, recently talking to Paulina Pompiano. I don't know if you know her or not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We, we are talking about ego that almost everyone has. So when you're surrounded by these A plus plus players who are way smarter than you, perhaps, how do you keep that in keep the ego in check and learn from them? Yeah, my my mental model around this is pretty simple. Uh, I think anyone that tries to start a startup has to have an ego. You basically are trying to say to your to the world that I have an insight or an idea and I can go create a hundred billion dollar company out of nothing. You have to have an ego. However, the way I think about this is. I'm trying to have a learning slope where a year from now, I can say, I was such an idiot for what I thought I knew last year, right? And I feel that way today, right? I was, I've only been in a startup for a year now. I felt this feel like five or 10 years, honestly, in terms of learning curve. But I'm like, wow, I knew nothing a year ago. And I hope a year from now, I say the same thing about me today, right? I think that's how you keep your ego checked that like, you should constantly be feeling like, God, I used to be an idiot. Um, and that means you're learning how, how do you really, uh, at a startup, everything is so fast-paced as compared to bigger companies that you have to do things instantly. Like you're talking about, you had 70 meetings um, there in the past four days. How do you learn things constantly in order to grow at a, a while working at or while building? Yeah, I think a lot of, I, I think a lot of the best learning actually doesn't come from like thoughtful reflection. I actually think it comes from velocity. Um, so the more velocity and reps you get, Think about it as if I swing a baseball bat 10,000 times in three months and I swing a baseball bat 10,000 times in 10 years, I think your learning is going to be somewhat equivalent. And so I think of the same thing about startups, right? Can you compress more reps into a shorter period of time? 
and to ramp your learning curve faster. Um, and I think about a lot of the like decisions I make today, I guarantee I'm wrong 10, 20, 30% of the time, easily, more probably. But I need to constantly make decisions without all the information that's available. Because if you wait till you have 100% information, you're going to be too slow. And so it's just grappling and understanding the fact that you're going to learn by messing up. You're going to learn by making quick decisions without all the full information. And then from there, hopefully your your failure rate in decision-making goes from 30% to 28% to 25% to 20%. Right? I think that's how you think about it. How do, how do you really make uh, these decisions within the last half? Yeah, like what's my framework for making better decisions? Yeah. That's a tough one. I wish I had this one figured out. Um, I kind of like thinking about this uh, this Jeff Bezos framework. Uh, he calls it one-way and two-way door decisions. And so a one-way door is if you make that decision, there's no possible way to go back, right? And so a good example um, for like our business is that once you pick a bank partner, it's tough to go back, right? It's simple. Now, a two-way decision might be, hey, I can definitely go back. I should make that quicker. Right, you should make really quick two-way decisions. Everyone actually tries to think about one-way decisions when they're making two-way decisions, and they make them slowly. So, a two-way decision would be: what type of email copy am I going to use to send these cold emails? You can iterate on that very quickly. Why are you taking so much time? Just go get data, rapidly iterate, and come back. Right. So that's how I think about that. So I try to really structure one and two-way doors, and try to figure out which one is, and then make them as quickly as possible. Uh, how do you how do you deal with decisions that go wrong? They go wrong all the time, but how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think it's more like, hey, okay, this one didn't go well. Why didn't go well? What did I think I knew? What was my thesis? Like, why did I think this was going to be true? Um, right, and then from there, trying to learn from it. Um, and so, like with the email copy example that I just gave you, it doesn't really matter. If that's the wrong decision. Right, maybe you burn a few days because you're sending out emails that don't have as high of a response rate, but just be very data driven around that. Figure out how to iterate, and so that's kind of how I think about it. Now, a bigger decision like quitting Goldman to join Meow is a different type of decision. And what I did is like I just controlled the variables I could control, which is my downside scenario. We're not going to go out of business in the next year or two. We're I'm just bad if I get fired, right? And so I can control that more. Yeah. That, that that's an incredible way to think about it. Uh, we, we're talking about decisions here. I think it's a good point to pivot on. How does a founder or a potential founder really identify or decide what what problem to fix? Yeah, I think it's a good question. We kind of think about this in terms of just obsess and delight the customer. And so anyone who thinks they have an idea of a problem to solve, unless you're the specific user, kind of a dumb it's kind of a dumb idea right because you can guess but i would rather guess more correctly and so generally the way i think about this is just like constantly be talking to the customer figure out what they want figure out if you can solve the problem figure out what existing solutions are there figure out what the pain points identified are and then go from there and so i definitely don't have a clear framework thought out perfectly distilled answer but it starts and ends with figuring out ways to delight the customer and then work backwards how do you, um, t- at Mia, you guys are uh, very customer obsessed and I think that's one of the things which I 
while researching i found out that differentiates you guys a lot from other startups uh why <laughs> why are you why are you guys so customer obsessed yeah i think like at the end of the day it's easy to get confused about what you're doing in a startup it's easy to kind of confuse me oh like it's nice my job is to raise money and have cool investors shout me out on twitter my job is to hire people my job is to build the company building processes and write my vision statement that's all trash really none of that matters the, the what matters is are you building a product that solves a problem for a customer and can you obsess over them and delight them enough where they want to pay you money to do so period that's it and so we boiled this down to a very simple thing i'm just delight and obsess with the customer and they'll tell you what to build delight and obsess with the customer and they'll pay you money to do it right and so just distilling all the hogwash and the twitter hype and fundraising announcements and all that garbage to say Am I delivering a product for a customer? And so that's why we're so focused on it. Yeah. I think I'll get back to this uh, in a while, but uh, you, you talked about uh, solving specific problems there, but how do you uh, identify pro- problems that are not worth solving or that you should not get into solving? Yeah, that's a great question because generally there's like more problems to be solved or figure out than like you've been with for. And so I think narrowly finding the most painful problem to solve or figuring out what in our mind is the, the most powerful wedge. And so we think about products in terms of wedge. Can you get something that I can talk to you about in five seconds and convince you that this is a good a good product to buy or use? Aside from that, a lot of it's like, hey, here's like a broad thing that I don't know if it's applicable, right? If you have a strong wedge that people want, right? That's a, a much better way. And then from there, you just need to listen to feedback and get data and iterate. I think people overcomplicate like high in the sky strategy. Now, when you're a bigger company, there of course has to be more structure and strategy. But I'm talking about in the early days of a startup, where at the end of the day, like you, your only job is to like go build a product and go sell a product. There's no other kind of stuff. And so, focused on short, small iterative tests are kind of a simpler way to do it. How do you guys go about iterating in a uh, in a problem? Like you, well, from the point of view of the company, when you launch it to customers, you get feedback. How does it work? Yeah, I think I think part of it um, when we're launching new things, it's like just like the level of feedback. So if our expectation is that we launch something, we have ten people that want to use it in a beta, that would be the expectation. Now, two hundred people start banging down our door saying, I want to use this. That gives us a lot of data to say, we should build out and productize around it. The way I kind of think about this is that like, we are a very, just ship quickly and get data and see if it's worth building out and spending a lot of engineering resources on building out the product further um, versus have a beautiful product that's fully fleshed out and then ship it, right? Because we're, we're the, the power of being an early stage sharp is we're nimble enough that we can quickly move. So we don't need to have like a bunch of dev cycles on a product that we're not 100% certain that will do well. So we kind of announce it quickly, see what happens, see what people want. If people, more people want it than we expect, we double down, we continue to iterate and go from there. How do you, uh, you guys at Mio, you have a vision of creating a company that lasts 100 years. How do you think will this change over time? In its 60th year, what do you think? Will this 
period of process of iteration key. Yeah, I think I think like institution building is something interesting. Like Michael Seibel, who's one of the partners at Y Combinator, I interviewed him actually a few years ago. And one of the most interesting things he told me during that interview was that he was at YC to build an institution, meaning something that was multi-generational that lasted. Right. Well, I found you're like 20 years old now, around then. And so he was yeah. focused on how can you build a durable institution that goes generation to generation. Like a similar example would be like a university, right? That's been around for 150 years. And so the people that think that long term, it's really the only arbitrage left, right? Is to think more long term. Everyone wants to get rich fast. Everyone wants to do something really quickly. And you need to have a maniacal urgency in the day-to-day moments. But having a super long-term vision for a company or for an institution, like I think that's how you create long-term value. But we'll see. We'll see if it works out. How how do you um, on uh, you guys are building a company a multi generational company? Uh, how how does how do you guys go about every day while keeping the hundred hundred year uh, vision plan while still functioning well enough today? Yeah, I think about it as like a long term vision, but maniacal moment to moment, maniacal urgency moment to moment, right? And so I saw this right from the Elon autobiography. Shout out Elon. He talks about like creating a sense of urgency. I think like Frank Slootman, if anyone wants to check out Amp It Out, it's a really good blog post you can check out on LinkedIn um, or buy his book. There's this idea that general organizations tend to create slack in the system. They're slower and more processes and more meetings and all that. You need to constantly be fighting against that lack of speed by creating urgency. And so we are very like, yeah, we have this long-term vision, but Day to day, it's like, how can I move at what we call meow speed, which is second by second. Right. Yeah, that 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 that's, yeah, meow speed. That's a very good term. Uh, but so you guys are building this or working on building this company with the little big vision, and you guys are uh, obsessed with customers. How do you uh, keep the whole team really customer obsessed? Obsessed with first customer. Yeah, apart from the founders being yeah. yeah yeah I think about this a lot so obviously our engineering team doesn't talk to customers on a day to day basis or as much and so generally the way I think about this is when we do our like all calls we call them which are like all hands meetings 15 minutes twice a week um, we will give an update I'll give an update about like what we're seeing here's what customers are saying and here's how they're thinking about this I'll put in like messages into our general slack channel with like Here's some things that we're seeing. Here's some exciting stuff that's happening. And so like people really get a pulse for like what's clicking with customers and getting customer feedback. And that's how we draw it. Our favorite thing is when a customer literally posts something about us or says like, I can't believe it was this great experience. And that feeds the whole team with energy. And so I'm kind of like an energizer bunny on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Uh, what do you think keeps your team motivated? I think a few things. I think people like, I'll, I'll break it into, into two factors. One on the engineering side, like I can't speak for that, I'm not an engineer, but I think like being able to ship things quickly to own your workflow is really exciting, right? Like your job, if your job is to be in bureaucracy and to have process, have all these things, like we're the most anti-product manager company of all time, right? We don't have product managers. So, and engineers really get to ship things quickly, and that's fun, 
Um, on the sales and the go to market side, it's really like winning and momentum and be able to have ownership over how we sell product, how it works, what we're selling, what the marketing strategy is, what the sales strategy, and then be able to go execute on it. Um, I think that gets you motivated. And I think momentum is the best drug in the world. And so once you get momentum, you keep it up. How do you generate momentum? I think it's small wins stacking. Yeah, it's like small wins that are stacking up, right? And so it could be, you know, you get one extra customer today or you have one really good call that turns into one call close, I call it, which is you close customer with only one call, which is pretty rare, right? Or you have an engineer had a Herculean effort to ship a new feature that's really exciting or something like that. So yeah, I think generally like finding small wins to stack them up over time creates some momentum and creates a flywheel. Um, yeah, that, that's a good point. I think uh, now that uh, we're talking about team a little bit, how do you, uh, how does, how do you guys plan to create a culture that that is like multi generational and a good culture engine? Yeah, I think I think culture is like a fancy term that generally doesn't mean a lot. I think in the abstract, I think culture is really what are the daily actions that are incentivized. Right. And so, you know, when someone is working super hard and they ship something, like, is that something that everyone gets behind and gets excited? Um, when someone closed a big sale, like, is that something where there's energy and excitement around? And so I think the culture of no nonsense, maniacal urgency, speed, ownership, every single person here is an owner of the business. Every single person here has excitement around what we're building. Um, I think that is like the foundation of what culture is. And then at the end of the day, it's like, it's your job, right? It's our CEO's job. It's my job. It's anyone's job to enforce the culture of the company to say, this is what we stand for. This is how we approach things. And this is kind of what we do. And so I think that stage, even out, you know, we're still pretty small, right? If we had a thousand people, it might be different. Um, that's everything about right now. How do you uh, manage manage the team internally? You, you call the problem of the team. I mean, the pro- team solves the customer's problem, but they also have problems which need to be solved. How do you manage that throughout the company? Yeah, I'm definitely not an expert at this. I, I would say, like, I want to get better at this. I want to be a better manager and figure out how to do a better job to incentivize the team to get people excited. Generally, the framework that I come up with is every single week, I have a one-on-one with the team members and my team, and we do a what I call 3-2-1. So it's like three stats, do improvements and one thing that will help drive the vision of the company or make us bigger or make us grow faster or something like that. And so that's the current framework that I use. And then yeah, we'll meet for 15, 20 minutes and talk through what those are and answer any questions and kind of do stuff like that. Um, that's generally how I've done it. Uh, now, I definitely don't have the perfect formula. Um, there's these things I'm definitely going to learn um, and get better at. But yeah, that's how I've used today in terms of yeah, yes. Uh, you you don't consider yourself that uh, great manager, but what do you really think that great managers have that uh, others lack? Yeah, I I kind of think about the like the ability to incentivize and motivate people. I think is is helpful. Um, when you're aligned towards what the vision is, right, and you have the correct incentives to do so and think super long term, 
I think having the incentives to think and act long-term about being the owner of the business versus short-term, what's the next output on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis, I think it's important. Um, and so I think people that do that are good. I really like um, Frank Slootman is probably my favorite manager for man at Amphidop and, and Snowflake and stuff like that. He wrote that book. He's one of the people that I admire of like just constant sense of urgency. And so I think only recruiting and having A-plus players on our team who raise the bar incentivize its other A-plus players to join. It's kind of the flywheel. Once you start bringing in other talent that is maybe like a B player, they're fine, but they're not raising the bar, then it's easy for the general organization to have more slack. Is, is it tougher to get A-plus players to join the team? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's harder to get A-plus players to join, but that's why it's worth it. Right. So if you have like an A plus player could be like a tax output for what we have. And so, you know, I think getting the top talent to do to join the team is like number one mission. It's something I want to get better. Right. I'm not, I'm definitely not fantastic yet at hiring. Um, it's something that hiring and managing is candidly like definitely not something that I'm like, I would say world class at by any stretch. I'm still getting way better. I have a long way to go. Um, but it's everything. Right. Having the best players in place is everything. For sure. Uh, so you 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 worked at uh, Meow and uh, like you've been in the startup world for a while now. Uh, what do you think are the biggest problems which your uh, which the early has face, which the company sh- or the founder should keep in mind when build? Yeah, I think like at the end of the day, like an early hire to start up, at least in my experience is someone that can deal with uncertainty. They don't need structure. They don't need process. They don't need defined stuff. They don't need defined roles. They don't need like all that. It's someone that can do a role with the punches and just be malleable and be able to be a chameleon in different roles, different opportunities, all that kind of stuff. And so you shouldn't know that going in, right? Exactly what you should be expecting. And as someone who's recruiting, hiring, being one of those players which i've been right joining as the ninth person be ready for that don't expect an onboarding manual right my first day i came in we plugged in the laptop and i went right that's how that was the quote-unquote onboarding process why do you think uh did you get hired at uh me yeah that's a that's a fun story um though so i saw a tweet from brandon our one of our co-founders and our ceo and i um I'll tweet about Jeff Bezos, which is the other most customer-obsessed person. Um, I reached out to him, and we got coffee in New York, and then see the line with the vision of the company, what they were trying to build. Um, and then we you know, spoke for multiple hours with me and some of the other team members. Thought it was a mutual fit. Um, I really liked like the hunger of the team. A bunch of crazy obsessed people trying to take over the world. Um, that's what I try to be. So yeah, that's how that's how I thought about it. I think I think maybe they saw that in me too. Yeah, that's. What what did you see in them? They must have seen something in you. You saw you saw in what did you see in them that motivated you? Yeah, I think it was it was some of the same qualities, right? So it was like, hey, these people have a Navy SEAL like intensity, right? And that's kind of what I was optimizing for: um, intense, no nonsense customer obsessed 
focused people that are trying to pursue a mission, right? Because startups have ups and downs, right? Things are great one day, things are terrible the next day. You're going to be the big, biggest company in the world. You're going to fail. Like all of those things go through your head at all times, right? That's just how a startup is generally. And so I, the ability to see that regardless, people would be unfazed was the thing I was optimizing for. Yeah, that, that that's an incredible point. What 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 do you think? Uh, what what did you? What is the biggest change from Goldman, which is a very very huge company or investment bank, to Mia? What what do you think was the biggest change that you felt and was and some good things, bad things? Like, yeah, it's a bit, the biggest change in my mind was just like realizing that like Goldman, you're basically like the default. Everyone knows you. Meow, no one knew us yet. Some people knew us. Now a lot more people know about us. But it's an underdog mentality. And like no one, there's no infrastructure. There's no support team. You need to go figure it out. Go be scrappy. Go make it happen. No one's going to be like holding your hand. Right. And so there's a lot of the things that changed. And that's what I wanted. Right. That's what I was optimizing for. Um, so that's kind of why I was excited to join. Is I knew I wanted to get that experience at an early stage startup. Yeah, that's that's an that's an incredible point. Was the was the change easy for you? Like from big company which has a lot of systems and processes to a startup where you had to figure everything out every day. Yeah, I just decided that I was in plumbing or outwork people and just like get after it, be super hungry. I think like hustle can figure out a lot of problems i think like hustle and intensity together can figure out even more problems so i think generally like if you go in with like i literally will just keep grinding keep figuring it out hustle harder sprint grind all that like all these quote-unquote cliches if you implement those to your first hundred days of the company right three months you will be okay Right. And so like, that's kind of how I thought about it. And so I, I actually didn't think it was like such a crazy transition. Goldman's an intense place in a different, different way. And so like the work ethic and being able to like figure stuff out and like multitask and do a bunch of different projects, like I already was doing that. Um, but the, sh the, the shift in mindset from like, there's no one here to help you figure it out was, uh, was humble. For sure. That's a good point. Uh, you you mentioned hustle there. Uh, the internet has kind of demonized uh, the, a small part of the internet has demonized the hustle culture that you should work very hard. Why do you think is that? Yeah, I didn't. I I think I tweeted this out. Um, work life balance in your twenties is an easy way to guarantee mediocre career. I think I tweeted that out. Um, people hated it. People loved it. I don't really care to be honest with you. The way I think about this is simple. Um, if you were trying to have ridiculously outsized results, build a massive company, be the best violinist in the world, be the best investor in the world, like one of these crazy outcomes, who are you to think that you're not going to need to be working really hard to do so? So that's just like a fact. Now, if you don't want to do that, it's totally fine. I don't like demonize anyone who doesn't do that. But it's like, that's just not, you're not going to have the results. You're not going to be the one lucky person who didn't need to work hard that, could, that went and did this. 
Now, can you pick your spots? Can you figure it out? I'm not saying like you need to work 100 hours a week, but yeah, I don't think anyone's achieved any ridiculous, outstanding results without a lot of hard work and hustle. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but a lot of times what we see is people who hustle a lot, people who work uh, work their bones, work their uh, bones off, uh, they end up getting burnt out in the end. A lot of them. Not, I'll not say all of them, but a lot of them. Why do you think, what causes that in your opinion? Yeah, I think, I think it's just like not enjoying the process and the day-to-day process, right? So it's like, if you're just grinding away for some outcome, it's like, I'm going to sell my company in 10 years. You're going to get burned out, right? Because here's the, here's the plot twist. When you do do that, you're going to be like, this is what I was working for the whole time, right? Any achievement I've had, and I'm not saying I've never sold a company, maybe I haven't seen those level of achievement, but like ending time, I was like, wait, I'm just going to sacrifice today so I can get to this next crazy goal. I was disappointed. Uh, however, if you're like, well, I have this crazy ambitious goal and this gets is exhilarating and this is intense, but like working hard can actually be fun if you're working on the right problems and doing the right things, then beautiful. Um, However, if you're just doing something for a hopeful outcome 10 years from now, I think that's when it becomes miserable for people. Hey, Tend. Have you ever um, experienced burned out or have you ever burned out in general? I think motivation comes in waves. Um, I think like, you know, when I was working super hard at Goldman, you know, for over a year, like there's totally times that I was like, oh my God, like, why am I doing this? Um, there was other times where like, I was like, this is easy or I'm working really hard and I'm doing a bunch of other stuff. So like it's motivation comes in waves. I actually think like doing the simple stuff, getting a certain number of hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, doing a workout, eating somewhat healthy. When I do all of those things, my ability to like manage my emotions and quote unquote burnout or lack thereof like skyrockets. And so I think like it's stupidly simple, cliche BS advice, but every time I don't follow it, I realize that why didn't I just do the simple stuff? Um, and so I need to remind myself of that often. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think uh, you, you toggle about uh, you follow the framework of going either 100% in or 100% out, which helps you in balancing things out. So what is that about? Yeah, I, I just think like you're never, it's, it's kind of back to the point of like you're never going to achieve whatever you want to do if you're not like completely bought into something. And I think it kind of reminds me of this um, this quote from Mark Andreessen. saying it's like the world's a malleable place. You know, if you go out with something with a hunt, you know, all the intensity and ambition, like you'd be surprised how quickly the world will conform around you. I think what he's saying is like, if you're a hundred percent in and you're sprinting full course and you're going after something and you do it and you decide you're going to have a long-term mindset around it, it's difficult not to have some sort of modicum of success. I'm not telling you you're going to create the next apple. That's what you're going to do. That would be crazy. However, like you're going to achieve something. And I think the best example of this actually is Mr. Beast, right? He started when he was 13. He has like no high school, college education. He was failing every class. He didn't like, Every single normal, quote unquote, normal metric of like intelligence, aptitude, whatever, 
was not there. He literally decided, I am going to spend every waking moment becoming the best YouTuber and the largest YouTuber on the planet. And he's done. That is, he literally said, he's like, I never took weekends. I just worked 10 days straight. And then I would like lay on my bed for an hour and burn out. He decided he was going to have a single mind focus. I think if you do that and apply that to anything, you might not be Mr. Beast, but you're going to have something. How much of uh, do you think what these uh, success stories are the relatively successful people talk about? People talk a lot about luck playing its role. How much of it is really luck? I think there's a lot of luck, um, but I think it's different than you think, right? So would Jimmy, aka Mr. Beast, be successful YouTuber? A hundred percent certainty. I can guarantee if he lived his lifetime 100,000 times, he would have at least like a million subscribers at all. What do you think? 200 million subscribers and be the largest YouTuber on the planet? Maybe not. Maybe there was a bounce. Maybe there was something else. But I think like luck is like a matter of factoring in like the magnitude. And so another good example is like Bill Gates when he started Microsoft. He basically was like, I think it was IBM. He fact checked me on the story here. There was some sort of deal where like he was going to either license the software or he still owned the rights to it. If he was just licensing the software to them, his company, he'd be worth like a billion dollars instead of a hundred billion dollars, right? So he still would have been successful and he would have done this amazing thing, but no one would know who he is, right? And so I just think like luck is around a lot about magnitude. And yeah, yeah, I, um, I think, I think, uh, people who work hard, they are, they increase the surface area to get lucky. Yeah. Not. 100% luck um, I think uh, we'll take a hard stop there uh, we talked a lot about different things uh, and I'll just ask what advice do you have for young builders and young founders yeah I think like become a weapon and what I mean by that is like get tools in your toolkit so you know the way I think about this is you know one tool could be I know how to design really well one tool could be I know how to code one tool could be I'm a good copywriter. One tool could be I built an audience. One tool could be I know learn how to sell stuff to any company. One tool could be I know finance. One tool, like build your toolkit and make sure that you're a weapon, right? And so I still feel every day, even though I've built a few different tools now and I still have a long way to go, that like there's always more tools. Like I wish I knew how to design. I don't know how to design, right? So like stuff like that. And so if I'm, I talked to my little brother about this, who's a junior in college at UPenn. I was like, go build your toolkit. Like, go learn how to be a copywriter, build an audience to do these things. Then you'll have a way more better skill set for whatever you want to do. And you'll be able to achieve things quicker and better in my mind. That, that, that's incredible advice, I have to say. Um, yeah, give it by, like, go ahead. Like, it's a video game. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I think we kept it short, but we'll take a hard stop there. That's it from my saying. Thing you'd like to say? No, I'm good. If uh, if you ever want to talk to me or get in touch, uh, shoot me an email, Chris at chrislab.com, um, or follow me on Twitter at chrislab. That's it. Yeah, for sure.